Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Before we get to our latest story, I want to say special thanks to all my patrons who make Southern Mysteries possible. As an independent podcast, I can't do this without you. Thanks to my newest patrons, Verlita from North Wells, Pennsylvania, Audrina from Austin, Texas, and Mamie, Ruby, and Harry, who are all listening and supporting from mysterious locations. When you join them in supporting Southern Mysteries on Patreon, you can access this year's patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious, Tales of American Crime, along with previously released patron-exclusive podcast. Plus, you can hear the archive of the first three seasons of Southern Mysteries, which you can't hear anywhere else. And those are for real fans of this show, because those early episodes sound much different than Southern Mysteries does today. If you're loving this independent podcast and you want to hear more, check out the show on Patreon and you can join today at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. On a cold December day in 1909, eight-year-old Alma Kellner walked from her parents' home in Louisville, Kentucky to St. John's Church, just five blocks away. She promised her mom to come straight home after mass. Alma Kellner never returned home and the circumstances surrounding her disappearance remain shrouded in mystery. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the disappearance of Alma Kellner. Eight-year-old Alma was bright and adventurous. Her parents, Frederick and Florence Kellner, described their daughter as their most precocious child with an amiable and loving disposition. The third grader attended St. Mary's Academy on East Broadway. The Catholic sisters said Alma was a model student with great promise. She was also devoted to her faith. Sister Mary Genevieve said Alma would often steal away from other children and go to the chapel to spend time in prayer. December 8th marks the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in the Catholic Church, a holy day of obligation in which believers are encouraged to attend Mass. On this day in 1909, Alma's mother and aunt attended early Mass at St. Boniface Church. Now, this was the church the family usually attended, but if they were running late or had other commitments, they would attend St. John's Church. That morning, Alma stayed at home with her baby brother and told her mother she'd attend a later Mass at St. John's. The church was so close to the Kellner home, you could see the church spire from their front door. When her mother and aunt returned home, they helped Alma dress for church. Alma wore one of her favorite plaid dresses. It was cream, tan, and brown, with little green and rose stripes trimmed with pearl buttons and a green collar. She wore warm black stockings and her favorite button-up shoes. Because it was so cold, she topped off her outfit with a red cap and her favorite black and white pea coat. 
Alma's mother watched as her daughter walked toward St. John's around 9.45 that morning. And this would be the last time her mother saw Alma alive. Mrs. Kellner didn't worry much when Alma didn't come home right after Mass. Alma was adventurous and curious and very talkative. She never met a stranger, so her mom initially assumed Alma had gotten distracted and would be home soon. But worry began to set in as hours passed with no sign of Alma. Mrs. Kellner called St. John's, spoke with Father Schumann, and asked if he had seen Alma at 10 a.m. Mass. He explained he had not seen her, and he pointed out to Mrs. Kellner that even if Alma had been there, she would have missed Mass because it started at 9 a.m., not 10. Mr. Kellner seemed to be in denial that anything was wrong. His wife had called police to report Alma missing, but when they arrived, Fred Kellner initially did not cooperate. He kept insisting it wasn't necessary for police to be there because Alma would be home soon, and panic was completely unnecessary. Police asked Mrs. Kellner if Alma could have gotten lost, perhaps headed in the wrong direction, somewhere between the church and their home. Mrs. Kellner said this was impossible because Alma knew every inch of their neighborhood. Plus, they had taught Alma if anything ever happened and she got lost or felt unsafe, she was instructed to find an authority figure and give her name. They made sure she memorized their address so she could always find her way home. A group of officers teamed with volunteers to organize a search. Meanwhile, a few officers retraced Alma's steps. They walked the route she would have taken to St. John's, asked people along the way if they had seen a little girl matching her description. They described the dress she was wearing that day and pointed out that she was about four feet in height with light brown hair and large blue eyes. It turns out several people had seen Alma that morning. The local postman, Mr. Augustus, and druggist, Mr. Young. Mr. Young looked up and noticed Alma outside of his shop near St. John's because he initially believed he had a customer. But he watched as the little girl watched a cat washing its face in the drugstore window. He was entertained by it, and then he watched her skip up the street in the direction of the church. Police spoke with people who had been inside St. John's for Mass that morning, but couldn't find a single person who had seen Alma. The search for the eight-year-old widened around the family's Louisville neighborhood. Police were vigilant, searching every home along the route to St. John's, just in case Alma had run away, or perhaps was playing a game of some kind and lost track of time. The postman and the druggist were the last people to have seen Alma Kellner. She just vanished. And Fred Kellner was beginning to join his wife in panicking over the disappearance of Alma. Florence was now convinced Alma had been kidnapped for ransom. Now, Alma Kellner was part of a wealthy family. Her grandfather was the president of Frank Fair Brewing the most modern brewery in Kentucky. Following his death in 1891, his son, 
Alma's father, Fred, became president, and the business thrived. Fred Kellner agreed with his wife that someone could have taken Alma to get their money. So they waited for a ransom demand. But the only demands that came were letters that police were able to confirm as hoaxes. Alma Kellner's disappearance shook Louisville and stirred fear in the hearts of parents. At this time, stranger abductions were rare, and parents watched their children a little closer, worried that the person who took Alma could strike again. In the early days of the search for Alma, newspapers and the coverage of the story helped. Every newspaper featured a photograph of Alma with a description of her and the clothing she was wearing at the time she vanished. It was much-needed attention to keep Alma top of mind in the hope of bringing her home. But the coverage of Alma's story turned into a media frenzy, a competition to sell papers with no concern for Alma's family and what the coverage was doing to them. The media turned to sensational headlines and printed strange rumors as news. First, papers wrote that Katie Martin, a former servant of the Kellners, met with two people who discussed the kidnapping with her. They suggested they wanted to meet with Mrs. Kellner to talk ransom and almost safe return. Once newspapers published the story, Katie Martin said it was a lie, denied a meeting ever happened. Police followed up with Katie, but nothing ever came of it. With no new developments, the Kellner family petitioned the governor for help. They asked him to offer a reward. Initially, he believed Alma would return home soon, and the reward wasn't necessary. But as time passed, he realized the family needed the help. He offered a $500 reward, which was the highest allowed under Kentucky law. After the notice was published in newspapers across the state, the wrong kind of people were motivated to make reports about Alma Kellner. Reported sightings came in from all over the state of Kentucky and as far as New York City. Some of these reported sightings were from well-intentioned people, but a majority came from people who were not quite stable or were money-hungry and had no proof to back up the claims they were making, including sightings of Alma all over the state of Kentucky. Not a single tip led police to Alma Kellner. Alma Kellner's family were trapped in a nightmare. They tried to hold on to hope that their little girl would come home. But on May 30th, 1910, six months after she disappeared, police arrived at the Kellner home. They notified Florence and Fred Kellner that the remains of a young girl, believed to be their daughter, had been discovered in the basement of St. John's Church and School. And the discovery had been an accident. Just days before, at St. John's, a building inspector notified Father Schumann that water had gathered in the basement just beneath the church and school and would have to be pumped out. Workers discovered a pipe had broken in the basement area just under the church, and four feet of water had to be pumped out. The job took several days. On what was to be the last day of work, 
with one foot of water left in the basement, one of the workers, Richard Sweet, descended a ladder into the area and immediately noticed a foul smell. He tried to continue work, pumping out that water, but stopped and was horrified when he processed what he was seeing in the water. A child's shoe came into view, then a foot, and gradually more of a body, which had been wrapped in an old carpet and covered with quicklime. Sweet notified Father Schumann, who immediately called police and the coroner. The coroner was on the scene for five hours, working to ensure all that remained of this little body was recovered from the cellar. The body had lain in the water for many weeks and was so badly decomposed that the remains would be described as mostly skeletal. One foot was missing, as well as parts of the skull. All the ribs on the left side had been broken. The missing foot was later found in the church furnace. The detectives believe the girl had been taken and murdered somewhere on the church grounds, and several attempts had been made to burn the body. They theorized the perpetrator was interrupted or changed their mind in the course of disposing of the child's remains. This news was all too much to bear for the Kellner family. They were in shock and unable to make any attempt at identifying the remains. Alma's uncle, Fred Fair, made a positive identification when he was shown a shoe that had been found on a portion of the remains. He had seen Alma the morning of her disappearance and recognized the shoe as when she was wearing the morning she went missing. The coroner noted Alma had been killed in a, quote, most inhumane way and officially ruled her death as homicide. Police found there was a trap door near the sacristy, a door they believed Alma's killer had used to drop her body into the cellar, where the killer tried to dispose of her and hid her remains in a water tank in the hopes she would never be found. Father Schumann was questioned, asked about who knew this trap door existed and who had access to the cistern in the area underneath it. He said he didn't even know about that area until the workers found Alma. This said to police that Alma's killer had to be someone who worked at the church and knew the ins and outs, someone who worked beneath the sanctuary and school, who was familiar with the basement, with that cistern, and the furnace as well. Someone like Joseph Wendling, a janitor police had questioned just days after Alma went missing. They questioned him because a few months earlier, he had accosted a young girl on a street. Father Schumann had hired Wendling as rectory janitor and his wife Lena as housekeeper just a few weeks before Alma disappeared. Police knew from speaking with Joseph Wendling, he came to the United States after deserting the French army in 1900. His wife was also a French immigrant. Father Schumann told detectives Wendling suddenly quit on January 11th, a month after Alma's disappearance. 
Wendling had drawn $100 from a savings account he shared with his wife. His wife told police she knew he was leaving, but he refused to say why or reveal where he was going. Police learned the carpet found around the body had come from a storeroom in the school, to which only Wendling had a key at the time of the murder. They also learned a barrel of quicklime had been delivered to the church about a week before the crime, and a woman had signed a receipt for the barrel. But no record of the sale existed because the quicklime had been paid for with cash. The authorities searched the Wendling's apartment where they uncovered incriminating evidence. Officers found a trunk and inside a gold ring and pin, which were identified as having belonged to Alma Kellner. Mrs. Wendling insisted she was given these items by a little boy on the street outside of the church and had no idea where he had gotten them. She did admit to police that her husband asked her to wash blood spots out of his work clothes just two weeks after Alma disappeared. Authorities asked Mrs. Wendling if she had a photo of her husband to help with their investigation. She claimed she did not, but was arrested for obstructing the investigation when police found a photo of Joseph hidden in the couple's living quarters at the rectory. Newspapers published that photo, and a nationwide manhunt began for Joseph Wendling. As the manhunt started, Alma Kellner was laid to rest at Louisville's St. Louis Cemetery. Her parents were so shaken by her death, they were physically unable to attend her burial. Alma was buried in a small white casket with a silver plate on the top that read, Our Darling. When it came to hunting the man they believed killed Alma Kellner, authorities found tracking Joseph Wendling to be harder than they expected. Joseph Wendling was a French immigrant, so they knew he had an accent. He was described as 27 years old, about 5 feet 10 inches, 160 pounds, with dark hair and eyes, and a small black mustache. His wife told police Windling had a distinctive tattoo of a ship on his right arm. The police tried to cover every possible angle in their search for Joseph Windling. Because the Windlings were immigrants, the authorities sent flyers to police departments in 100 villages across Germany and France with a warning to be on the lookout for this killer. Unfortunately, this led to several men in Europe being arrested and accused of murder before proving they were not Joseph Wendling. Back in Louisville, police officers continued to search the grounds of St. John's for any evidence related to Alma Kellner's murder. In the basement, they uncovered garments Alma had been wearing when she disappeared, a glove and blood-smeared handkerchiefs. A grand jury convened and indicted Joseph Wendling for the murder of Alma Kellner. At the urging of the Kellner family, Louisville's chief of police, Carney, who had been in charge of the case, resigned from the force and devoted his time to the hunt for Joseph Wendling. Carney picked up the trail in New Orleans, where there had been several sightings of a man matching Wendling's description. 
Carney traveled through half a dozen southern states before he finally traced Wendling from Houston, Texas, to Vallejo, California. A police in Vallejo helped Carney track down a sex worker Wendling had taken up with. She told Carney Wendling had moved on and was headed to San Francisco. As Detective Carney traveled to San Francisco, local police ordered all precincts to be on the watch for Joseph Wendling. On July 29th of 1910, Carney finally got the tip he had been waiting for when Wendling was traced to a lodging house. Carney and a few officers moved in, but found no sign of Wendling. The next day, they returned, questioned the landlady, who refused police entry to her home. She insisted her lodger wasn't there. When threatened with arrest, if she lied to police, she changed her story, came clean, and admitted her lodger was inside. Detective Carney rushed in and found a man working on the plumbing. When he emerged from under the sink to see what all the commotion was about, his sleeves were rolled up, and Carney saw a tattoo of a ship on the man's right arm. Carney arrested Joseph Wendling, who quickly admitted his identity but denied any involvement in the murder of Alma Kellner. Winley insisted he fled Louisville to escape life with his wife, who was significantly older than him. He said he did not flee because he was involved in a crime. Joseph Winling was extradited to Louisville, where he faced trial the following November. Powerful testimony came from two women who came forward to police to report. They saw Joseph Wendling lingering near a little girl they believed to be Alma the morning she disappeared. They did not know it was Alma at the time because the child did not regularly attend service at St. John's. One of the women said she remained at church after Mass so she could spend time in prayer. And she noticed this janitor looking at the little girl, said she got a strange feeling about him and wondered why he lingered near her. The jury toured St. John's Church during the trial so they could see the area where they believe Alma had prayed the day she disappeared and then see the area where her body had been discovered six months later. On the final day of trial, the jury was exposed to a horrific scene in the courtroom as Commonwealth Attorney Joseph Huffaker held the shriveled remains of the foot of Alma Kellner. He approached the jury and said, Look at these little toes, clenched in their death, agony parched to cinder by the heat of that horrible furnace. Then he pointed to Wendling and said, A man who can make a firebrand of a child has not the light of heaven in his soul. The defense maintained the state's case was circumstantial and questioned whether Alma Kellner was even dead. They pointed to the remains being so badly decomposed, her uncle Fred Fair had only identified a shoe because that was the only identifiable object attached to the remains. Joseph Wendling took the stand in his defense and denied having assaulted or murdered Alma Kellner. He explained that he was responsible for lost and found at the church and the laundry chutes and claimed that's how he could have come into possession of items that belonged to Alma 
that were later found in his living quarters. The jury deliberated for three hours and 25 minutes. They returned a verdict of guilty, and Joseph Wendling was sentenced to life in prison at Kentucky State Reformatory at Frankfurt. Joseph's wife, Lena, was released from jail due to lack of evidence that she had knowingly assisted in a crime or cover-up. Joseph Wendling's trial and imprisonment made front-page news across the country. He would make front-page news again in 1919 and 1921 when he escaped from prison. Each escape lasted a few hours before he was recaptured, and it seems the second escape helped him settle down. Joseph Wendling became a model prisoner. He eventually became eligible for parole, but Alma's father and uncle attended every parole hearing and did everything in their power to keep this child's killer behind bars. Then in 1934, Alma Kellner's uncle Fred Fair received a letter from Joseph Wendling. The contents of that letter have never been revealed. All we know is that Mr. Fair immediately wrote to Kentucky Governor Ruby LaFoon asking that Wendling be pardoned on the condition he immediately be deported back to France and never return to America. The governor agreed. Joseph Wendling was released on January 30, 1935. He, along with the warden, Thomas Local, boarded a train for New York the same day, so Wendling would be ready to board a French liner scheduled to sail on February 2nd. When Joseph Wendling arrived in New York, he was met by a lot of press who asked about his sentence, his time in prison, and plans for the future. Wendling said of it all, I bear no grudge against those who wrongly put me in jail. I always knew that someday I would regain my liberty. I intend to go home to my parents' little farm in France. From the time of his arrest until he set sail to France in 1935, Joseph Wendling never wavered in his insistence he was innocent of the murder of Alma Kellner. Once he was back in France, Wendling spoke to the press in Paris, saying he had plans to sue the United States government for damages. He said he had been in prison for 25 years for a crime he did not commit. Days after Wendling made this claim in Paris, Louisville reporter Harry Bloom with the Louisville Times wrote that he could now reveal the truth of his investigation into Wendling. Bloom wrote the following, Wendling did sign a full confession of the murder of Alma Kellner before receiving the parole that liberated him. Wendling's eligibility for parole depended on the attitude of the family of the slain child. As long as they blocked it, no governor would grant it. When the parole was finally approved, it was announced that two conditions had been fulfilled. One, arrangements had been carried out for immediate deportation. The other condition was not publicly disclosed. Governor Ruby LaFoon said Frank Fair requested parole in a letter after the family obtained information from Joseph Wendling they had been trying to get since 1909. I've learned that information was a full confession of the murder 
of Alma Kellner. Joseph Winling's claim of innocence, it was believed by some. In 1935, there were people from Louisville and across the country who doubted Wendling was the killer of Alma Kellner. Some believed her killer was Hans Schmidt, or Father Schmidt, a Catholic priest who had once served at St. John's in Louisville. Father Schmidt had been ordained in his home country of Germany and soon after was sent to the United States. By 1908, he was assigned to St. John's Parish in Louisville. While there, he had a falling out of some kind with another priest. We don't know what led to that rift. We only know it ended with Schmidt's transfer to a church in New York City. While in New York, Schmidt met and fell in love with Anna Allmeyer. She was the housekeeper for the rectory. They were not as discreet as they believed themselves to be, and Father Schmidt was transferred to another part of the city. But distance didn't keep them apart. Father Schmidt and Anna continued their relationship. They even sort of married in a secret ceremony. Anna was worried about the relationship, so Schmidt proposed and obtained a marriage license. He performed the marriage ceremony himself, which was, of course, not legal. Anna did not know this, but Schmidt knew. Father Schmidt was still living at the rectory, with Anna living in an apartment he had rented for her. On September 2, 1913, Hans Schmidt arrived at Anna's apartment. That night, she revealed to him she was pregnant. Schmidt responded by slashing her throat. He dismembered her body and threw her remains into the Hudson River. When Anna's remains were found, police were able to track down the man who rented the apartment for her, Father Schmidt. He was arrested and charged with murder. He tried an insanity plea at trial, which ended with a hung jury. At his second trial, Father Schmidt was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison. On February 18, 1916, Father Schmidt became the only priest ever executed for murder in the United States. Because Schmidt had served at St. John's, was transferred under suspicious circumstances, many people in Louisville put two and two together and firmly believed it was possible Joseph Wendling was in prison for a crime he did not commit. After all, Father Schmidt had brutally murdered Anna and dismembered her body, just like Alma's killer. Schmidt had visited Louisville from August 1909 until March 1910. He was the guest of Reverend H.B. Westerman, pastor of the Church of Immaculate Conception. He was in the area when Alma disappeared. Before his execution, Schmidt was interrogated in relation to the murder of Alma Kellner. He told detectives he confessed to all of his crimes, and he would confess to Alma's murder had he been her killer. But he said he did not kill Alma Kellner. To the day they died, Alma Kellner's parents 
never wavered in their belief Joseph Wendling was the man who murdered their precocious and loving little girl. They had to bear the pain of losing a child for the remainder of their lives. And they suffered that pain twice. In 1917, their 17-year-old daughter, Minnie, died at home following a short illness related to heart disease. Minnie was laid to rest next to her sister Alma in Louisville's St. Louis Cemetery. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Some people are still convinced Joseph Windling wasn't the man who killed Alma Kellner. Whether it was Windling or Father Schmitz is for you to decide. Schmidt did confess to his crimes, and when given the chance, denied any involvement in Alma's murder. Windling also allegedly confessed to Alma's family to gain his freedom. But after he returned to France, he became a martyr of sorts. The French press often featured stories about Wendling and dubbed him an innocent Frenchman who had been persecuted, a victim of an American mistake. In an interview with a Paris newspaper, Wendling revealed he had proof he was innocent and Kentucky had wrongly imprisoned him. He claimed he was collectively awarded $50,000 by the United States government and the family of Alma Kellner. He said it was payment for damages for unjust imprisonment. In November 1936, the Louisville Courier-Journal printed Joseph Windling's claim, along with a response from ex-Governor Ruby Lafoon. The claim that Windling was an innocent man paid off to confess and leave the United States was news to Lafoon, who said neither the state of Kentucky or the family of Alma Kellner ever paid any indemnity whatsoever to Joseph Wendling. Wendling lived out the remainder of his life in France. Alma Kellner's father, Frederick, died in 1942. Her mother, Florence, in 1961. Father Schumann, who helped comfort the Kellner family in their time of sorrow, remained in Louisville until his death in November 1931. Father Schumann is buried not far from Alma Kellner and her family in St. Louis Cemetery. St. John's Church is no longer a consecrated Catholic church. The church and school buildings that were central to the tragic story of Alma Kellner no longer stand. A single building now stands in the area where an eight-year-old knelt to pray before she met her end. If you want to see photos of precocious little Alma Kellner and learn more about her story, including recommended reading and the sources for this episode, check the full show notes at southernmysteries.com. As always, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>